If you stick around Real Hope for long enough, you're probably going to see this little bullet train running around our church. Uh, this is my son, Knox. He's going to turn four in June. And uh, I'm pretty sure that God gave Knox to me uh, just to prove to me that he can make good things come out of my life. Um, and he did a great job at it. Knox is amazing. But two years ago, his mom and I found out that he had an extra hole in his heart. Uh, a, uh, it was something that normally closes up in about the first year of life. And to get that fixed, it was going to require surgery. Um, for us as parents, that was really shocking. Um, even though the doctors called it a minor surgery, it was a surgery on his heart. And that scared us quite a bit. Um, so we started praying. I spent the next several months praying for a miraculous healing for Knox. I had heard about this happening uh, to other people where they'll have this big operation that needs to happen. They go in for like the final appointment and suddenly whatever was wrong isn't wrong anymore and they get to just leave the doctor's office. And it's, it's great. So we, I started praying for that. Um, I prayed hard. I prayed into every appointment that we had with the doctors. And then October 2017 came and went and we had the surgery, and we were out of the hospital that day before the sun had even set. We made it home, which is really weird on 59. <laughs> and so, like, we, we had this experience, and we came out with a vibrant, healthy, very excited son, boy, who needed some juice as quickly as possible. So we got him that, of course. But... The thing is that God didn't pull through the way that I wanted him to or the way I thought he should. If I'm being fully transparent with you, I felt betrayed in that moment. I had thoughts leading up to that surgery like I, I planted a church. I tithe every month. I give extra whenever I can. I serve wherever I can. Surely God's going to do me this solid and, and I can move on. And, but that's not how it turned out. And when it didn't pan out that way, I started to have some doubts that God had my best interests in mind. We all have this idea about what we think people deserve, especially ourselves. We have an image in our mind, a way that we see the world that helps us determine what is good and right and fair. And all of these things pair together to give us an idea, our personal idea of what justice is. Whatever you believe about fairness, though, there's kind of a core concept to justice, and that's that something is wrong and it needs to be made right. That's kind of the core of all of that. Something is wrong and it needs to be made right. But thinking about justice as what we deserve gives us a flawed idea of what justice is. It can damage how we view God and distort how we see the people around us. Often our concept of justice sounds something like this. I get what I think I deserve when I think I deserve it. Or I should get what I think I deserve when I think I deserve it. While on the surface, this makes sense. If we're bad, it makes sense that we get punished. If we're good, it makes sense that we get a reward. But it, life doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes bad or negative things happen to good and faithful people. And sometimes even good and faithful people still feel that pain. 
So I want us to do something together this morning. Um, if you don't mind, let's set our expectation this to the side of what justice and fairness are. And let's allow the word of God to reteach us the concept of justice from God's perspective. Our goal in approaching this text this morning is to allow God to reteach us and show us, once we understand that, what we're supposed to do with that when we see it clearly. Today we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, uh, it's in the New Testament, nestled in between a bunch of smaller letters, right in between 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. This second letter to the Thessalonian church probably came quickly on the heels of the first letter. Timothy had gone to deliver the first letter to the Thessalonians uh, by himself. He delivered it to them, had conversations with them, got to know them a little bit, kind of got an update on what was going on, uh, and came back to Paul and Silas, his co-authors for these letters, and uh, gave them the good, the bad, and the difficult news that was going on in Thessalonica. And um, because of that, they wrote another letter, spun Timothy around a couple of times, and pushed him on his way to go deliver that second letter. Where the first letter to the Thessalonians covered kind of this internal struggle that individuals were having in this new church, the second letter covers more external factors that are pressing down and bearing in on the Thessalonians, these oppressive challenges. And uh, the, the one that we're going to talk about this morning is the persecution that they were experiencing. We know historically that the city of Thessalonica in the Roman Empire uh, had a laundry list of reasons to persecute Christians. Uh, they uh, celebrated the Roman pantheon, which was this group of idols that had come over from the Greek pantheon when the Romans took over, uh, and they had kind of made their own analogs of what they are, and they, all of Rome was required to recognize and worship them. The second was Caesar. He had decided for himself that he was like a god and should be worshipped as such, and so he became an idol for the Roman Empire. On top of those things, the city of Thessalonica had a city cult that the governors ran. And on top of all of that, Rome was generally pretty accepting of other religions as they conquered other people groups, as long as they recognized those first three as valid. The problem with Christians is that, A, they wouldn't and we don't recognize the legitimacy of other gods and view them as idols. And second... Christians tend to practice worship by publicly serving other people. That's just kind of the natural response. And that didn't sit well with the authorities of Rome and the people of that time. It challenged the way that people in that culture had lived and caused them to want to force this new religion, this Christianity, out uh, in any way they could, which often led to violence. So Paul starts this letter the same way he does with a lot of his letters, with encouragement, specifically pointed at that persecution. So let's start reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials 
that you're enduring. Let's stop there for just a moment. Uh, Paul's opener to the Thessalonian church is that grace and peace would be with them. And then he gets right into the why. He says, uh, basically, like, grace and peace from God and us. And wow, you guys are incredible. Your faith and your love is inspiring. You, your, your trust in God is astounding. Your, your love for each other and for the people around you is inspiring. In fact, we use you guys as examples to all these other new churches to tell them about how to do it. Thank you so much. Even though like all this persecution is on you, thank you for your faithfulness. And Paul had received this report from a people who have the right to feel beaten down and lonely and separated. And in spite of those circumstances, he sees that they're leaning on each other and they're leaning on their faith. But somewhere in his tour of the Thessalonian church, Timothy got a sense that there were some real issues going on. And I can imagine Timothy sitting down with one of the young elders of this young church and that elder looking up at him and saying, hey, hey, Tim, can, can I call you Tim? Um, hey, we've been sharing the gospel just like you guys taught us. We've been sharing all of our resources and supporting each other and supporting the poor. We've done everything you told us to do, but we're still hurting out here, man. When when are we going to feel saved? Don't we deserve better? And so they, they express this, this need for something more. And we've, we've gotten a hint of what they're experiencing already in these first few verses. Yes, they're growing, but it's in the midst of violent persecution. And we all have moments like these. It's probably not you being stoned in the streets. But it does look something like, like, it's like things that are out of our control. Things like maybe losing a job or a broken relationship or a surgery that's unexpected. Maybe it's a whole mountain of little things that have added up to this one big thing. Whatever it is, they're, they're things that leave us saying, why me? I thought I was doing enough. I thought I deserved something better. But Paul, Paul doesn't leave this question unanswered, though. Thankfully, let's pick back up, starting in verse 5. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. Circle that. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. Highlight that sentence right there. Circle God is just and highlight he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all of those who believe. This includes you because you believed our testimony. 
See, we think about justice in terms of what people deserve, whether good or bad. It's like we narrow down this idea of justice uh, into fairness in which all of these wrong things need to be made right and where if things are right, they deserve ease and rest. While that's true of fairness, it's only a part, a small part of what justice is. Justice is not an idea or a concept. Right there in verse 6, God is just. God is justice. It's a character quality of his. It's part of his nature. It's woven into the details of everything he created because it's an inevitable part of him. And his justice is right. And we can trust it even when we're in pain. Instead of reassuring the people that there must be some glitch in the system or that if they pray hard enough or believe big enough that something else would happen, Paul's charge to the people of Thessalonica is to do two things, persevere, persevere, and have faith, even though we might be getting what we don't think we deserve. Trust that God is just. Have faith that God is just. In spite of the pain that we feel here and now, because when Jesus returns, we will have perfect rest and perfect peace. And we will live in that perfect world that we want to be in now. But we have to wait. We have to persevere. Paul shares a similar thought with us in 1 Corinthians, where he says uh, essentially that we're seeing now, this relationship we have with Jesus now, is like looking into a mirror, where we see a reflection of what it's going to be, but we don't see the reality of it yet. We're seeing a, a small a glimpse of that perfect relationship in life with Jesus, but we're not there yet. And in the midst of all that, Paul gives this encouragement to people who are being troubled. But he also includes the fate of the persecutors here. And I think it's to remind the Thessalonians of two things. The first, and I think this is the primary truth that Paul wants to share, is it's an encouragement to to these people, to this church, that you're not forgotten. That people who do violence to the children of God will not escape judgment when Jesus returns. The things that are going on in your life that you cannot control are not ignored by God. He's not above them, not paying attention to them. He sees them. Our hurts don't go unnoticed or unanswered. I do want to make a sidebar here. For anybody who might be on the fence about Jesus or about God and and you're just not sure about Christianity or this church thing, um, because this can come up, come across, this passage can come off as kind of aggressive. If you don't know Jesus, this is a chance for you to be like a fly on the wall in the middle of a conversation between a mentor and a hurting church. See, Paul's goal is not to um, condemn anybody with what he's saying, but to encourage this church that's in pain. It comes across as very us versus them, but what we need to understand about this passage um, is that these believers are being violently persecuted. We need to remember that. 
We know from reading other passages in the New Testament that Paul also uh, wrote that even though this is true, even though this is the fate of people who do not know God and don't obey the gospel of Jesus, even though that's true, that's not what we should desire. That's not our goal for those people. Ezekiel thirty three eleven, a passage not even in the New Testament written long before Jesus was ever on the earth, says this. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? We say it all the time, but it says it right here. This isn't Jesus talking. This is Old Testament. The God that's been attributed so often in conversations to this God of wrathful vengeance says to all of us, I don't want a single person to die. I don't want to see you fail. He doesn't want our separation. He wants us to turn to him. The God of the entire universe says, why will you die? I've already done that for you. Turn. The second thing I think Paul is reminding the Thessalonian church of is that this justice, this punishment that he talks about is not just for people who persecute. That's why he doesn't say this punishment is for people who persecute. He says this punishment is for people who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. Paul isn't saying those people over there will get punishment. They'll get what they deserve because you've been faithful. That's not it at all. He's saying as long as they continue to not know God and to not obey the gospel of Jesus, they will receive the judgment that we all deserve. The justice that was paid for you by Jesus when you had no way to pay that penalty yourself and survive it. That's why he says God's justice is right. And because of that justice, you've been made worthy of his kingdom. Paul paints this picture very clearly in Romans chapter 3 and 6. Romans 3.23 says, for all, everybody, all of us, nobody excluded have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then chapter 6, verse 23, says, For the wages or payment of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. When we're talking a whole lot about what we deserve and what is fair, and then we read a passage like that, or the one here in 2 Thessalonians, it's almost like the rising question for some people might be, so we all deserve death? I'm definitely worth more than just dying. Like, can't he take my pinky toe? There's an important distinction here between what we deserve and how much God values and loves each of us. And we find that in the story of the gospel. See, this, the flawed definition of justice that we talked about earlier 
says that I get what I deserve when I think what I deserve it. But that whole notion of what we deserve is toppled, knocked over, entirely destroyed in the gospel. See, sin doesn't rob you of your goodness. Sin doesn't make you not a good being. God created you. You are good because you're created by a good God. What sin does is it fits over you like a costume, like a suit that you can't remove on your own because it's got like a weird zipper in the back. The gospel is this incredible story of Jesus coming to earth and dying in our place to pay the price for what we actually deserved. God loves each of us so much that even though we all sinned, we're all wearing that costume and deserve death and separation from God, Jesus paid that price and instead offers us the gift for free of eternal life in a perfect world with him. Jesus took what he deserved. He took that payment of death and, and because he loves us and is making things right in his timing. When Jesus died, he took off that suit, that costume of sin that we were wearing and set it to the side and burned it and gave us a new suit. And that suit's not about a replacement. It's not about taking who we were at our core and entirely ripping it apart. It's showing us what we were created to be in the first place. When scripture says the old has died, it means that costume, this thing that was holding us back from God has been ripped off and replaced to show clearly what God created already. See, because we've all sinned and we all deserve that punishment, God loved us so perfectly that he paid that price himself so we wouldn't have to. This helps us shift our thinking about justice to be more in line with God's. When we do that, when we shift that thinking, it helps us to reshape and reform what we say about justice. And that's what Paul has been teaching us through and building up to this point in 2 Thessalonians and in Romans. So write this down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, pull out that cell phone that Jenny talked about earlier that I know you all have and write it down on your digital notepad because I don't want you to miss this. This is, the, this is the reshaping of how we think about justice. God's justice is not about getting what you think you deserve. It's about God making things right in his way, in his timing. I know that's kind of long, so I'm going to pause for a second for you to be able to write that down. God's justice is not about getting what you think you deserve. It's about God making things right in his way, in his timing. When we change our thinking this way, it helps us to see God, his creation, and the people around us with a gospel-centered clarity. It helps us to value people the way God values them. And it helps us to grow in faith 
and patience while we trust that God's way is always the best, most just way. So what do we do with all this information? I'm really glad you asked. And Paul is too. He's not done. Verses 11 and 12 are going to give us some good application to move forward with now that we have this clear picture of what God's justice is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. With this in mind, all this stuff from before, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power, go ahead and circle that, by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Go back and highlight that. Circle by his power and highlight, bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's power. By God's power. Fulfill every desire we have for goodness and every good deed prompted by our faith. By God's power. We can't muster our way through this idea. We can't be strong enough to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just make this all happen. We have to trust in God and rely on him to do this in us to change our perspective. When we have situations like lost jobs, broken relationships, unexpected surgeries, and even personal loss, it's hard. It's okay to struggle in those moments, especially when things go in that negative direction. But even in our struggles and even in our pains, we can trust that God is just and he will give us rest. If we never receive even one earthly blessing, God's justice was still served on the cross. And we can rest in and trust that Jesus will come back and finish making things right. Because he is justice. Two years ago when Knox had his surgery, I had that flawed mindset, thinking that I knew what I deserved, I knew what he deserved, and when I thought we deserved it. That put a cloud over my relationship with God and caused me to, to doubt him, to doubt that he had my best interest in mind. It wasn't until I made this shift in thinking <clears throat> that I was able to celebrate what God had done for us in Knox what he's still getting to do for us through Knox. God's justice is not about getting what you think you deserve. It's about God making things right in his way, in his timing. So as I, as I close out, I want to pray just kind of a, a paraphrase of those last two verses, because it is a prayer. It's Paul's prayer for this church, and this is how it was meant to be read was as a prayer 
for them. So I want to paraphrase that for us and pray that over our church this morning. Dear Lord, we constantly pray for real hope. We pray that you would make us worthy of your calling in this community and in our lives. We pray that by your power, you would bring to fruition and fullness every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by our faith. We pray this so that your name, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in real hope and in our community and that you would be glorified in us according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.